My name is Jonathan. I'm an alcoholic and I'm terrified. And, and you know, it's so I got sober in 1990. So 32 years later, this still scares the shit out of me. But here it goes. So from a very early age, I knew something was very, very wrong. And I didn't understand what it was, but I knew there was something wrong. And I knew that I didn't belong. And I knew that things were not what they seemed. And I knew that I felt there was this gaping hole in the middle of my chest. And I, and I knew that I should be somewhere I wasn't. And I had those feelings from a very early age, six or so that I can remember. And uh, my parents were lovely, but they were both terribly depressed and angry and in denial of that and in denial that anything was wrong. And I was way, as we all are, too sensitive. And I knew something was up, something was amiss. And one of those things was the fact that I was severely dyslexic. And, and I grew up in a very, I mean, my father was a proofreader for a college textbook uh, company. My mother was a reference librarian. My fucking sisters, the cum laude twins, you know, and I couldn't spell cat. And in the third grade, I started failing in school and at about the age of nine. And I started to have to get to that point where I had to pretend it didn't matter. I had to pretend a lot of things didn't matter. I had to pretend that I could read. I had to pretend that I, and I was smart enough to get a lot of stuff and then I filled in the blanks or I ignored the blanks and I went on. And actually in AA, that's kind of how I did my recovery. Well, the rest of it, you can imagine, you know, I drank, I felt better. I drank, I, I, I felt complete. Um, And then, uh, and I was a periodic drinker for the beginning because I couldn't multitask. I, you know, it wasn't my choice to be a periodic drinker. I would have loved at the, in the early stages to drink all the time. But when I drank, I drank until I passed out. So there weren't a lot of situations where you could do anything else. So until I was about 25, um, you know, I, I drank and I drank myself out of situations, out of schools and things like that. And then I, I met a, a fella and, um, three months into the relationship, I knew, I knew it was over. I knew there was no there, there. I knew it. But he wanted me to stay. 
And I thought, eh, you know, the apartment's nice. He's nice enough. Uh, eh, have a drink and maybe it'll get better. And at that moment, I turned into a daily drinker, just like that. All of a sudden, and there were reasons, and I held on to all of these beliefs why I wasn't an alcoholic. I, um, I didn't buy vodka in plastic bottles. I could wait till four o'clock in the afternoon. I didn't drink in the morning. It wasn't until I was eight years sober that I realized that Saturday and Sunday fucking counted. So that was a lie. Um, the relationship got horribly abusive. And um, and very, very sad and very, very painful. And every time I didn't think it get, could get worse, it didn't, I stayed for it. I stayed for it because this was the pain I had always known. And I really didn't think there was going to be, there was any option except to drink more. Finally, at one point, I was hanging in there and, uh, and then I, and uh, it was, you know, it is so, ugly and ordinary at the same time that uh, let's just say I finally left and I went to my parents who uh, to the house I was uh, was born in and I was seeing a therapist and the therapist said to me I was lying to them. I mean, you saw, I don't even know why I was seeing a therapist. I really didn't believe anything could change. And he said to me, did you go out last night? And I said to him, yes. He said, did you have much drink? I said, not much, 12, 13 drinks, not a great deal. And that motherfucker said to me, do you think you have a problem with alcohol? Now, if he had said you're an alcoholic, I could have denied it. But he said, do you think you have a problem? And I got so angry that I said, yes, I think I have a problem. And it's with your ugly face. And if I ever see it again, it'll be too soon. And I stormed out and I tried to get drunk that night and I couldn't. And I drank everything I could find. I went out champagne testing with a friend of mine for her fucking wedding. I drank a bottle of tequila. I woke up that next morning so angry and so cold sober because someone had questioned the one thing in my life that I had faith in could finally help. And I knew the motherfucker was right. But I, I didn't know what else to do. So I went a few days without drinking. And then 
you know, and I started having these moments, like where did all these empty bottles come from? And, and uh, when was the last time I went without a drink? And And what now? And so I got to six, six days without a drink. And I was in my room and I was rocking back and forth and I was crying. And I said, oh my God, I need a drink. And a voice went off in my head and it said, you lousy drunk, you blew it. If you'd been at a party and someone said one olive or two, you could have said two and everything would be fine. But you're not at a party. No one's offering you a fucking olive. You're an alcoholic and you have two options. Now, this was 1990. So this was before reality TV. This was before a lot of stuff. So... I, there wasn't a lot of information really out about AA the way there is today. So this thinking went on in my head and it said, you could go to AA. And the only thing I knew about AA was what I learned from Susan Hayward, you know, watching I'll Cry Tomorrow drunk and thinking how lovely everybody was and what nice gloves the women wore. And, um, but that's it. That's what I knew. And then uh, and I'd heard about it, but you know, only heard about it. But then my thinking went on. And I and the next thought was, or you can drink and always feel the way you do right now. And in that moment, my alcoholism shattered. At that moment, I couldn't. You know, I couldn't. I couldn't bear that pain anymore. I couldn't bear that emptiness anymore. I just couldn't, and I didn't know what to do. So I called up Intergroup, and I got a very terse woman on the other side who probably had it, had her fill of, you know, drunken people and wives and things that day, and she wasn't very nice at all. But she told me where to go. And I showed up and the meeting times had changed. So I show up just as the meeting is ending and I think, oh, thank fucking God. God, what a relief. The meeting is over. I showed up to the fucking thing. Now leave me the fuck alone. And you know what happened? This motherfucking guy, this guy they used to call Tony the Greek, sees me in the parking lot. I must have looked like raw meat to him. He sees me in the parking lot and he comes up and he shakes my hand, motherfucker. And he says, I'm sorry you missed the meeting, but there's one tomorrow. And something in me said, okay, well then I'm just gonna have to have that drink tomorrow after I go to this meeting. I don't know where this is coming up, but this is how my mind, this is how desperate my mind is for something different, you know? So I show up at the next meeting. And annoyingly, it's even more convenient than this one was, because I didn't know how to drive. drive, because when I was 16, people were learning how to drive. And I thought, well, 
I don't need a car to go into Manhattan, which I can walk to. Um, I don't need to go to anywhere in New Jersey except for parties. And if I drive to a party, I can't drink at a party. So who needs to learn how to drive? That's how influenced I was. That's how invested I was in drinking at the age of 16. That was like driving, eh, who needs it? And, and true, who? but anyway, so here I am. I go to my second meeting. There's this woman, elegant as hell. She's just elegant and well-spoken. And I, I show up late and she's in the middle of her qualifications. And I sit down and the first thing out of her mouth is that I hear is I had a pain I could no longer tolerate. And I thought, how the fuck did she know? How in God's name did she know? How, how did anybody know? How could she have known? So I stayed. It was just like that. It was like, oh, well, then I have to stay. Because she knows. Somebody knows. And then I go to another meeting that week in the, in the city, because I'm working in the city, and there are meetings all over. And I hear this guy and he says, my sponsor says to me, don't have conversations without, uh, don't have conversations with people who aren't in the room with you. And the second time in a week, my breath is taken away. I'm thinking, I'm always talking to people who aren't in the room with me. I'm always mouthing off and spending time on what I should say if I run into somebody or what I should have said when I saw them last week. And it kept on happening. People kept on putting words to feelings and emotions and experiences I'd had my whole life. And that feeling of being alone in the world evaporated because I wasn't anymore. I was no longer alone. There were people who had the same feelings that I had and didn't drink over them. And had other solutions to living with them. And they said, you don't have to have a drink today. And I didn't think that day existed, that I didn't have to have a drink. So I stayed in AA and the God stuff I ignored. You see, that was the gift of being dyslexic is what words didn't get through. You just move forward, you know? And so I moved forward through the steps. You know, the third step made no sense to me whatsoever. And I just sailed through, you know? And, and it's funny because 
the thing about recovery, it's almost like uncovery, you know? It's like I've piled all this shit over my true self, and now I get to sweep it all away and see what's really there. Because I, I you know, I had a benign relationship with religion. It, there, were, there were a couple of things in it that were sweet. And then I was at a church and I was listening to the liturgy and I was sober about eight years. And I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? I don't believe one fucking word of this shit. And, um, and now what do I do in AA? You know, being gay is one thing. Being an agnostic in some of these meetings is, is heresy. Well, it's heresy. That's fine. I'm fine with being a heretic. Anyway, so now we're getting now we're getting to the crux of the matter, which is so I'm doing the steps because and they're making sense to me. And um, so I'm here to talk about the eighth step. Okay, here we go listener be warned so i'm it's november i get so i'm three or three months into the program four months into the program and i keep on hearing in the rooms the person you have the biggest resentment against is the person you 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 owe the biggest amends to and i'm thinking well i've got to get all these steps done i've got to get them done because i don't want to get kicked out right so i'm going to do them and so it's i'm going to make the amends so it was very easy. I knew who this was, this person I, I had the biggest resentment against. So it's Thanksgiving, which is, which is a very lovely holiday here in the States. And um, I pick up the phone and I call my ex and I say, I am so sorry for everything I did wrong and what a mess I made of our relationship. And I wouldn't have done any of it had you not been such a tremendous fuckhead. And then um, I, I took my breath and I excused myself from the conversation and I hung up the phone. Ah, now, let us remind ourselves what is the eighth step. It says here in this book, the AA version, made a list of all persons we'd harmed and became willing to make amends to them all, okay? And then the Jeffrey Munn practical version says, determined the best way to make amends to those we'd harmed. Determined the best way. Keep your fucking mouth shut until you know what to say or have worked on it with someone else. Well, I went on to not learn that lesson. And two months later, I was in San Francisco visiting old roommates whom I had uh, stiffed for rent. And they, but I went to make amends to them and I did. And they said, oh, that's fine. We're glad you're well. It's years ago. Don't worry about it. Okay. Now, had I planned this out with someone else, I might have been able to leave it there. But no, because I thought I 
you know, I, I, I got this. So I said, oh, no, 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 no. That's, you know, if any of you ever want to stay in New York, you're welcome to stay with me. Oh, my God, it was hell. One of them stayed and never, it seemed like he never fucking left. I would wake up at, I kept on waking up earlier every morning to get some peace from this man. And he kept on waking up earlier so he could have his coffee with me. <sighs> so there is an easier way of doing this. And here's the thing about the eighth step. <sighs> it takes a lot of time to heal. With my relationship with my ex, there was so much mutual damage. Some of these, it's quite easy. I did this wrong. Here are my amends. I am sorry for that. And here's what I can do. But when it's that kind of mutual destruction, for me, because I'm a slow learner, you have to, I had to give myself oh, enough time for the swelling to go down. It, you know, because in the beginning, it's like trying to sort overcooked linguine. You know, you have to let that shit dry out so you can get any kind of handle on what, what was my, what was my doing here. Two years later, I met him for lunch and I was able to say this. I used to blame you for everything that went wrong in our relationship and I no longer do that. And that was, and that's as far as, and as honest as I could get in two years. But it took me two years to get there. To which he said, well, it's about time you figured that out. And to which I said nothing, which was part of my amends. It is the most freeing and the most uh, liberating of the steps for me because it allows one to go anywhere in the world. The ninth step happens as a result of all the hard work you do in the eighth. The ninth step just happens, but it, it, it's, you know, it's like, but you can't get there without doing this. I had to keep my, I keep my mouth shut until I'm able to open it with no blame, with no hidden agenda other than owning my mess. That's it. And it takes me a long time to understand what that is. The, and it wasn't until probably 20 or some years into this program that I was able to put a handle on the third step. And I couldn't do that until I defined what, what was meant or what I could understand will. Okay, so made the decision to turn my will and my life over to, to fucko, who cares? And I, um, I didn't know what that meant until I defined my will 
as my limited imagination of how things should be or should have been. And once I understood that, then I had something I could drop like a hot potato. Then I could had something that I could just let go of. I didn't have to make it anyone else's responsibility or problem, but I could walk away from it. And that's freeing. Um, I'm able to in sobriety I'm able in sobriety to to be this mess I bring before you and to uh, and to be grateful and to be present for all of this shit. You know, one of the things we don't say to the newcomer is stay sober long enough and some of the worst things you can possibly imagine will happen and they will happen to you. Because not a single one of them will be a reason to drink. My mother died in my arms. The horrible, I saw horrible things. I buried so many people. But because I wasn't fucking drinking, I was part of the experience. I was in that moment and I was useful and I was a part of it all. Instead of sitting on a bar stool, waiting for the time I could do it perfectly and in the meantime, drinking. I just show up and do my best and, I, and that's, all because of this program and the ability through my way of working the steps to bring myself into reality so I can take my next cue. That's all it is, is being present and taking my cue. The telephone answers, pick it up. It's cold outside, put on a coat. You know, stuff that used to, no, I didn't understand because I was afraid of everything. I guess that's all I have to say. I, I think I covered everything I wanted to, to, to warn you about my experience with the eighth step. And, and to say, you know, you we're not in this alone and talking about it with other people would have helped and probably saved me from making an ass of myself. But, you know, making an ass of myself is part of the whole process for fuck's sake. And um, I've probably cursed enough for the next week for this meeting. So I'm sorry to take up, you know, the quota. Um, Thank you for being so kind and letting me share.